Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Career Journey Podcast. I'm your host, Brittany Avila. And on today's episode, we have our first returning guests. We have Melissa O'Brien and Dr. Holly Sachs of Flourishing Professional. And with our returning guests, this episode is set up a little bit different than normal, where instead of going into the background of their career journey themselves, we set this up as more of a Q&A session where we asked our listeners what questions they had about going into graduate school, considering graduate school, navigating the career field, and so on. And we really focused on what are the most common questions, common concerns around considering grad school, going to graduate school, um, navigating the career market. And it also kind of devolved into um, a whole new way of doing this episode as well, because what happens around the one hour mark or about one hour, 10 minute mark, you'll kind of hear this abrupt change where we were ending the episode. Our episodes usually take about an hour. And then last time that we recorded our first edition of this podcast, we ended up talking about so much for probably another hour after we stopped recording that I had wished was in that first episode. So this time I didn't stop recording and we totally took a new direction and talked all about kind of networking, managing networking, how to do it in this 21st century society and with social media and network, um, the internet and all of that stuff. And so we got a little bit more animated, a little bit more into all of that networking. So this episode is longer than usual. Again, you can separate it about that first hour mark. There's also a moment where you'll notice the topic switches very abruptly. Because we were kind of after our technical recording session, there was a moment where we went on a tangent that was not relevant to the topics at hand. And so it does switch topics pretty abruptly, but it's all re relating to that networking. So without further ado, please enjoy our first repeat guests, Melissa O'Brien and Dr. Holly Sachs of Flourishing Professional. everyone, welcome to the Career Journey Podcast, where we explore exciting careers and how to get them from the people who flipped it. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Avila. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Well, not only were you my first threesome, you're also my first repeat guests now. Woo! So, <laughs> so welcome back, uh, Melissa O'Brien and Dr. Holly Sachs from Flourishing Professional. So this will be our episode of kind of frequently asked questions or questions that people don't know they should be asking when searching for graduate schools or heading fresh out onto the job market or even switching careers, things like that. So my first question, I guess, is... We talked a little bit on our last episode about the hidden curriculum, and I want to go back to that a little bit. Is there a part of the hidden curriculum that you think is maybe the most misunderstood that people should know the most about, or is there like your favorite kind of hidden curriculum idea that you like to tell people about? 
Holly, I'm going to let you take it away for this one and then I'll jump in because this was actually, um, well, I'll let Holly tell you about all about her research. <laughs> yeah, that was a big part of my dissertation, actually. Um, I, I think that a lot of the hidden curriculum is the expectation and um, that you have to have a degree to like, I think a lot of people go to school to begin with because of a hidden curriculum that is in the K through 12 saying, we're getting you for, ready for college and career readiness. Right. And it's at that possibility that you're going for college, 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 college throughout the entire, um, your whole K to 12 existence is to get to college, but that necessarily is not going to be your personal goal. So um, it may not work for you. And I feel like there needs to be, that hidden curriculum needs to be adjusted to realize that if you're at odds against what people are, always telling you that you need to go to pursue one one road one career path is not mm -hmm. always going to work for you so you do need to like realize that the predominant career path is you have to follow point a to point b to point b there's an expectation so when you get to college and you get there and you realize wait a second this this isn't <clears throat> what i wanted there's no shame in changing tracks or um, I think I mentioned the last time I, about my brother, um, he wanted to be a baker, but he ended up going to a four year school instead of culinary school. And then he ended up backtracking in his um, 30s to, you know, go back for an associates in baking. And now he's happy as a clam. And he's like, well, right. I could have, you know, diverted a, and saved a lot of money if I'd just gone to the culinary program. When and I was time. Yeah, it goes when I was 18. He goes, but yeah. there was an expectation that was never formally discussed that we would go to college and we would get those degrees and we would, you know, do the whole college, like the standard, you know, sets that everyone puts out. And I think that that's one of the reasons why we are facing higher ed institutions are facing the crisis they're in today. It's no I, yeah. And I, I think that pressure has been mounting higher and higher <laughs> with these younger generations. And it's such an expectation. We're seeing the highest ever like first generation students. And I think most of that is because a, a lot of people just don't believe that they can get a job without a college degree anymore. Um, and in some respects, I think that that might even be a little bit of truth because even careers that you never needed a college degree for previously, now all of a sudden you do, right? So my mom, for instance, started her own travel agency, never went to college, but now she only hires people that went to college because she thinks they have something else that people who didn't go to college have. And I'm like, well, what? Like you didn't. Um, and so that pressure is getting a little out of control and there might be different ways to get there. Well, there's an expectation that you need to have that degree. And because of that expectation has been hidden and and fostered subconsciously for so many years, it's now become normed. Like, right. so now you have to, as you just described, well, now jobs you didn't need the degree for, you know, need the degree for just to get your foot in the door. So, yeah. um, I mean, we have to be aware that you now you have it. That's the way that everything is set up now. I also feel like another um, um, hidden curriculum item that comes when you're actually in school is that you're powerless. You know, that if something's not going right or something's not yeah. comfortable in the school, that there's an expectation. I think we were discussing, um, I know Melissa and I would discuss this uh, many times, the, the culture of bullying, that it's okay that a professor, you know, can treat you poorly because that's just the way it's done in higher ed, you know, you know, right. um, they can definitely get away with saying stuff that is absolutely mind boggling, like, if you say it to a normal person on the street, you get slapped with like all sorts of complaints, but it goes under the radar. So there's this expectation of almost like a, a low level um, hazing that occurs on the graduate level, especially in the doctoral level. That's what I found was really surprising. Absolutely. 
Um, and that it's such the norm that everybody just accepts it and thinks sure. that it's okay. And I think that even exists a little bit at the undergraduate level too. I was talking to a student about other professors who are not respecting her accommodations. And I was like, I didn't even know, like, I thought that was law. Like, I thought you just had to do accommodations. Like, I didn't know that we had a choice, but I mean, we don't, we shouldn't, right? But you don't. <laughs> we don't, but so many professors make it a choice. They're like, no, I'm not going to do this. It's going to take extra, whatever their reasoning is. I don't even care. They're denying accommodations to people or they're denying. So this low level, like bullying, hazing that you're talking about, and students feel so powerless that they don't think that they can do anything. Like this particular student even went back to like the department, um, you know, and she was talking to me about where to go and she was too scared to go to the department chair because she's like, it's all a circle. They all know each other. They're all friends. Like it's, it's, they're just going to retaliate against me. And I'm like, this is undergraduate level, not even graduate yeah. level. When I worked in disability services, that was a major issue we would have on a regular basis. We'd be talking to faculty and saying, no, you have to do this. You legally need to do this. And I, I won't even forget, we had, you know, actually a couple of stories here. One, we had a student who came back and the professor came, you know, said they're not doing our honoring my accommodations. And this is already a process when you get into hidden curriculum of in higher ed, there's all these different processes you have to navigate, all these different offices. Um, and so going to disability services, somebody who has a disability, um, they may have up until, you know, K through 12 had their parents advocating for them. And now suddenly that switch is flipped. They have to learn how to advocate for themselves, which is good. We want to encourage that. Um, but that's a hard thing to do if you haven't had to do it before. And so now they do that process. They're all proud. They have their accommodations ready to go. And they walk in, the professor says to them, oh, we don't need accommodations in my class. My class is set up so you don't need it. But it's not, though. Like, you, it's not up to you to decide as the person creating yeah. this class and this process that something is set up for somebody else. If they get accommodations, you have to provide those accommodations. But it's amazing the disconnect with faculty and the student affairs people. This is my little pedestal thing from being a student affairs professional is you know, there's this huge disconnect sometimes of like, we are coming to tell faculty to do things, not because we want to tell them how to do their jobs, um, but but simply because we want to help them respect the laws that are in place and create classrooms that are going to foster the educational environment that that faculty member probably wants to create anyway. Well, and as an educator myself, education and growth exist in other ways besides my course content, right? So teaching a student how to advocate for themselves. That's not something that's learned easy, especially when you have anxiety, especially when you have low self-confidence, especially when you're 18 to 20 or, I mean, at any age, really. But learning, I'm still learning to advocate for myself. I'm a mother of two. I have a full-time job and I'm 34. Like, And I'm mm -hmm. still learning that process. So to me, teaching them how to do that is part of that process. Mm -hmm. And by cutting them off and saying no, you're negating that education for them because now they're going to be less likely to do it in the future. And they're, they're going to sit in that classroom, not fully understanding and not grasping everything. And they're going to come up a little bit shorter than they could have. And when we add too many obstacles and too many processes to navigate, which is some of the issues in higher ed, when you add too many, eventually that person's just going to give up. And, you know, backtracking a little bit when we talk about um, that sort of expectation of college I've done a lot of work with students who are from like a lower socioeconomic status where they're first gen, 
Um, and they are maybe just for some of them escaping something. And it's all they know is getting that college degree is going to help me get out of whatever it is. It's going to help me get to that next best thing. And they don't know what that is. And then they get to college and it's, okay, now what? I remember I had a conversation with uh, a young woman who is, I think she was 18 or 19. She was a freshman or sophomore. And I asked her, what are your goals? Have you considered that? And we started having a conversation about goals for after school. Um, and that's sort of, you know, the why behind being in college. And it, it, it sort of, she broke down too. She was like, nobody's asked me that. No, I, asked that. I see that every day in advising of, especially in my, my career. So I'm in psychology and the misconception about psychology, the biggest misconception, I think, well, there's a lot, but one of the biggest ones is that you have to go on and get a graduate degree. To do certain things in psychology, absolutely you have to. If you want to be a counselor, if you want to be a therapist, if you want to do experimental research, you have to. But there's a ton of other things you can do with a bachelor's degree. And so I tend to see a lot of students that are like, okay, I'm here for a discussion on grad school. Like, how do I plan to go to grad school? And I was like, well, what do you want to do? I don't know. I just know I need to go to grad school. Well, if you don't know what you want to do after, then you're not going to be able to find a grad program that's right for you. Or you're just going to go in and you're going to be completely miserable because you're just picking one that everybody else is telling you that you should be doing. And so I try very hard to tell them to work backwards. Choose your career first and then find the path to get there because there's not one set path, but there is more of a trajectory when you know what you want to do. If you don't fully know, then you're just picking at random and you're going for no reason you're wasting time, you're wasting money. But it's not really taught because again, I think like Holly was saying earlier, there's such this expectation that you go to school. And then with psychology students, there's this expectation that you go to graduate school. And we're not really confirming why that is the case. Um, what careers that you want and what degrees are necessary to get those careers or even what the job market looks like. Like I have to teach students all the time what an actual livable salary looks like because we don't know when we're in school. I didn't know. I thought my current salary was like mind blowing. I was like, if I could achieve that, oh my gosh, I don't know what I would do with that kind of money. And now I'm like, oh, I can barely afford like anything on this salary. Um, you know, we have to teach them what does that job market actually look like? I think we also run into a misnomer that you go to school and then you get a job and having a college degree gets you a job. And I think that's a holdout from kind of that GI Bill era when there were so few people going to college that employers literally would be calling you before graduation and asking you to, to go there. Now there's such more, there's so much more competition because everybody's going to college that you also need something in addition to your degree. You need skills, you need networking, you need the, that advocating for yourself, you need marketing skills, basically, like how to market yourself, tons of different things. And I think we're not really teaching that side of We're things. also adding to the gaps in privilege like a lot of people are like, well, there's greater educational access. Well, that may be so, but we're not looking at what else we can do to help our students. So you get a student who, you know, if you have two students that are going to grad school, we'll say, and it's like this student since high school was, you know, in all of these clubs and organizations, they were volunteering and they also, you know, maybe worked that retail job. They're doing all of these extra things. So they look so great. And then you have this student who 
well, in high school, they just went to classes. Their grades are okay. They went into college. They did more stuff. They were in some clubs, but they didn't really work. Or maybe it's the opposite. They were working constantly, but they weren't really doing any clubs. They weren't really doing that. And it's like, well, maybe the student had to work to pay for school. Maybe the student already has kids and is trying to just get to that next step. And so there's this sort of, you know, basically the, the middle class that's dying um, and higher where their kids have tutors that they're paying for. There's, you know, even in college, like somebody's dad or mom knows somebody that gets them an internship in the summer. And so they already are padding that resume with all these extra great things that some students who just don't even have that opportunity, especially those low SES first gen students who are just, they're in college and they're just trying to figure out how to navigate this process. When we say that there's greater access, but the numbers actually don't show that either. I think admissions is another kind of gatekeeping thing. I'm sure I'm going to get fired for this, but, um, it, you know, especially like if you look at like elite Ivy schools, even not even just elite Ivy schools, all of them pretty much the numbers for minority students, the numbers for Pell Grant students, which we kind of lopsidedly like equate with low income students. Mm -hmm. Those are all usually for a lot of schools are hovering around 8% of admissions or below. Mm -hmm. And they've been hovering that way for years. And like Ivy leagues, you think they even have gatekeeping things like they look for athletes, right? So, oh, let's look for athletics, but we're going to look for people that have lacrosse or rowing or some other type of different athletic skill because we want something different. But those are usually reserved for the higher income neighborhoods that have access to those types of sports. And so it's not really as equitable access as we think, even with a larger majority of people going to school. Absolutely. And all of those sports too, the equipment's expensive. Like um, I married a hockey player. I already know we're going to have hockey kids and that's what all of my money in life is going to go towards hockey equipment forever. (laughs) Well, we live at the base of a mountain. We have skiing and they're like, don't get your kids into skiing because you have to have like five different types of skis for different things. And I'm like, I can't even afford to put them in a hundred dollar soccer league right now. Like how am I supposed to pay for that? Yeah. But the problem is that participation in those type of sports build the social connections and the networking they need to propel to a higher. That's how they build their social and cultural capital is through inclusion and those extracurricular activities. So, And it's even at the education level, like we were trying to put our kids into Montessori type schools. And there's two here in our town. And one of them, the one that's closest to our house that has the best networking, that's kind of the rich neighborhood, all of that stuff that we would have wanted them to have access to for those specific kind of networking ideas was like 60% of my salary, yearly salary to send them there. It was like $40,000 a year to send them there. And I make 60,000. I was like, that's impossible. Um, So it's hard when we're saying we're, you know, this education is just going to open these doors for you, but you still have to learn all of those hidden norms. You still have to figure out how to get there. And the hardest part is sometimes it's just out of reach because you don't have the money to go send your kids to that Montessori school where they're getting right. skills, meeting those people. Um, and that's that's the tricky thing. And even when we talk to people about graduate school, getting back to sort of picking that right one or understanding what that trajectory would look like for you. There are some who are so focused on, you know, the name of the school and applying to graduate school is different than applying to colleges you could have a completely different ranking system. You could have a graduate program at some no-name school, 
that would be 10 times better than, you know, the graduate program at, and I'm pick on Penn State since it's my alma mater, but at Penn State. <laughs> and I think everything at Penn State is great, but uh, I can't say that all of their grad programs are number one. They're not. Um, you know, you can't rely just on the name itself. You have to look at all of those other pieces of the puzzle. Well, and especially for careers like mine, psychology, and I think there's other career fields that are like this, where you're doing research and you're really applying to work with an individual, not the name of the university. And that's another thing that students don't know either when they're applying to these programs. I'm like, well, what type of research do you want to do and who do you want to work with? And they have no idea. They're like, well, I want to go to this school because it's like by this place that I like or whatever. And I'm like, that's not exactly how it works in some of the graduate programs. Sometimes you have to apply directly to work in a line of research. That might not be at the big name, Yale, Harvard. Like it might be at some, you know, it might be at a Cal State and I'll pick on Cal States because I went to two of them and I love them, um, you know, but it might be somewhere else. And again, I think that's part of the hidden curriculum is, oh, well, I just apply to programs. Well, in some of them, you have to apply to work with people and others you don't it's every program's kind of different what they expect from you is a little bit different and kind of how to navigate that so I did want to bring that up because you guys have a blog post about kind of five things or six things to consider when um, looking at grad programs do you mind kind of walking our listeners briefly through some of those things that they should be thinking about Sure. And I'm actually, if you give me a moment, we can edit this out. I'm going to pull up the blog post to make sure I'm going. Well, that, I'm listening. We're talking about like interviewing the program. We actually have another post about the importance of the grad interview. Yes. Um, that is so important to go and talk to the faculty because then you're basically getting a sense for the type of people you're going to be working with. Um, Cause I remember like, when I started the doctor program, when I, the first day I was in class, we're like, you have to realize that the, the relationship between you and advisor is like, you know, they jokingly called it a marriage because you guys are going to be working like together and arguing back yeah. and forth for like years. And so it's like, yeah. if you don't get along with your advisor, you can have a really bad experience. So well, and that's where some of that hazing can come in too. If you're working with an advisor who's trying to uphold that rigor of what they went through, you might be experiencing things you don't want to. Or if they're they're if they're stressed out by having to produce research to get tenure or to keep the grants in the university, they're going to put a lot of pressure and almost like lash out on their poor graduate students. You know, right. like, the other thing too, and, when you're looking at choosing an advisor, you don't want to just look at how do they work with their students. You want to look at are their students actually completing programs. Are they also, is that person publishing regularly? I know Brittany has a lot to say. We, <laughs> we learned this in, in our grad program. Well, you, your husband more so than me, but. Well, I know you struggled a little bit with your advisor um, having certain expectations because she was a, a new professor. Yeah. So I, well, I stumbled into my advisor on accident actually, and she was brand new. She wasn't actually accepting students the year that I was applying. She was supposed to wait another year because it was her first year. But mm -hmm. circumstances happened. She ended up being able to accept me. And so I was her very first one. And she was amazing. And I don't like to say too many like negative things because she really was a great advisor. But we had to deal with the hiccups of her being brand new to the advising kind of structure and me being brand new, not really knowing what I want. And I'm also personality wise, I'm a person who kind of, I'm a people pleaser. I tend to kind of go with the flow and I don't 
really assert myself. So we talk about advocating for yourself. Again, I'm still working on that. And I think I needed somebody a little bit more experienced and strong-minded to help me during that time. And I didn't know that that's what I needed at the time. Um, so what I love most about this conversation is kind of going back to this idea that students tend to think that they don't have enough power and agency. And I would really, really love for students to learn how much power they could actually have. Um, but when you're choosing a program and you're choosing a mentor, you feel like you have no power and who gets to, you know, especially these programs that are harder to get into, like clinical psychology is the hardest program to get into above law school and med school. And these students are just dying to get in there that they feel like they don't have a choice to say no, or they don't have a choice to, to interview somebody just as much as they're being interviewed. And they're so scared during those interview weekends that they're not even thinking about what they want from the program. And I really would like students to know just what kind of Holly was saying. It's so important to also be interviewing that school, to also be thinking, is this the program that I want? Would this make me happy? Is this advisor somebody who works well with me? Do I work well with them? Am I going to get what I need out of this person? Or are they gonna get what they need from me? I think a lot is that students give up their power the minute they walk on the campus. They feel like, you know, yeah. they put their, their university in a position of power without realizing that it should be equal. You know, yes. you're, if you want to look at it from a business model, you're paying them to give you a service. So there is two sides to that contract. Mm -hmm. So students should be comfortable to talk to and feel comfortable on campus. And if they're not, that's actually something you really need to consider. If you're not comfortable talking up to these people in your graduate interview, then maybe that's not a great match for you. Right. And I was hoping that this would be one of those positive outcomes that came from the pandemic, because what we've seen in higher education is almost a collapse without tuition, without not really tuition even, because tuition, like, there's this whole thing in how higher ed gets funded. Um, essentially, your tuition dollars are really not going to anything. A lot of times, universities actually lose money kind of on tuition. Where they gain that money really is that room and board. So those, the housing, people being on campus, paying for services, paying for things like that. And what we see is that their business models kind of collapse without that income stream to a certain extent. And so a lot of times, I think as students especially where I am at like a research one, we're like, well, all the money really comes from those grants and from research. And so they don't really care about teaching and they don't really care about these things or whatever our ideas are. But what we've seen with the pandemic is that we do need student funding. And what I was hoping that we could see from that is that we need students just as much as they need us. And I'm, I really would like to see that power dynamic shift back where students could realize just how much power they actually hold, even when they're on campuses. And I'd like I guess to we're starting to see that because I guess I saw an article that Melissa sent me um, a, a few days ago about how some schools are actually freezing um, admitting new students so they can put more resource into their current students, you know. Nice. Especially PhD programs because they don't have the funding available. So they're not taking students, but then they're finding creative ways to fund students an extra year so that they can sort of finish up, but also like have a little bit of a cushion. Um, but the other thing when it comes to funding is there's a part of the conversation that people seem to like pull away from it is the state's funding. 
Um, and I think right. that's because it gets tied into this whole thing about free education and how somebody feels on that side. And um, I'm not even going to get into that, but just states fund education. They do. That's just how it's structured. Yeah. Uh, and they're not actually doing it that though. Like they, they keep reducing the amount of money that's actually being sent to, and I mean, education as a whole. And then when they do come up with, okay, well, we have to send some money towards education. Um, well, K through 12 is where we're going to focus what most of what we have because higher ed can charge tuition. And there's that mindset of, well, higher ed can charge tuition. And then when higher ed raises tuition, it's why are you raising tuition? It's like, well, we need to raise our fees and our tuition and everything else because it's the only way we can function and meet, you know, there's also extra demands now. It's not just the demand of the classroom stuff. There's this mythological college experience. And I think that's even coming to light right now during the pandemic as well. It's yeah. how much of a myth the college, and I'm putting air quotes here, the college experience really is. Um, but all of those additional, you know, activities and things that happen on campus, that's where a lot of money goes as well. And that's, you know, not being funded either when you don't have students who are coming in, you don't have the states funding that. And so there's a greater demand from students and families for what a college environment can provide beyond just that education in the classroom. And without the funding to back it, that's part of this reckoning now. You know, we need to have yeah. the state step up and invest in education again. Well, and there's a really good book that I just read at the beginning of this winter break, um, Sustainable, Resilient, Free by John Warner. Um, you guys should check it out. It's basically, it talks about this and how kind of universities have now become almost a part of that kind of capitalist idea of, you know, that goods and services, you know, the idea that we've changed it from kind of a degree that benefits society, which is why the states originally funded it to now a commodity, you get this, and then it's like a certification almost now you can go get your job kind of thing. And then that's kind of backslid us into more of a market economy and less of a goods and services for the state. And so this book actually proposes that we can make education free um, and have it fully kind of state funded and bring it back to that idea, whether you go to that extreme or not, I'll leave to you and to the listeners. Um, but a really good book to read about kind of how education is funded and why and like what is education for and i think we do need to get back to that question of is it just a commodity is it literally just to get a certification so you can get a job is it an experience is it a way to learn how to think critically what is it really and what do you want to get out of it it's hard too when you have you know basically when you make a donation to something it's going to be that memory that you have well, most of the donations when they come into institutions are not to, you know, improve a classroom. They do get those, but it's to build the new basketball arena. And then you get right. these questions afterwards. Why are they building a new basketball arena? All our equipment in our classrooms is outdated. But unfortunately, that money, because it was tagged to be for a basketball arena, that is what it legally has to be used for. And so yeah. there's, you know, misconceptions about how money can be used in higher ed, too. And like it can't. Um, I mean, even with endowments and what that means and how they tap into it, you know, it's not something they just flip a switch and, you know, transfer money out of their account like you do online yeah. and you switch money between your savings and your checking account because you realize you couldn't save that much that month. <laughs> like you can't just switch them back and forth. Um, you know, these structures have been set up based on a sort of historical setup for higher education that just can't exist anymore. Right. 
I remember learning that when, you know, as an academic, I was always in that camp of why do they spend so much on athletics and all that, you know, that whole fight between academia and athletics. And then I learned, well, the athletic department is actually like, so like funded by other stuff. It's not even funded by the same stuff as the education part. And then I was like, oh, well, I'm no longer a part of this dynamic because that's not even our money. Like that money could never go to us anyways. That money's theirs. They're getting it from a different source, all of that stuff. And so really this compartmentalization of where money comes from and like how it can be spent. I think the bigger question is what does your university or the university you're applying to value the most? Because that's what they're going to earmark certain money for, right? So that's what... If they're trying to get more students on campus, most of their money is going to go towards new basketball courts or lazy rivers or whatever people are talking about, right? Because they're trying to get students on campus. And those are the things that attract students a lot of the times. And it's one if of the things to consider when you're applying somewhere. That's yeah. actually on our list. <laughs> yep. Yes, let's go back to your list because I've no, derailed. No, that's a good segue into it, actually. That's, I was okay. like, yes, exactly. Um, because that is one of the biggest considerations is what does that place value? And not just what is, you know, what are the people in charge value, but what do the donors, what are the alumni value? Um, yeah. That can tell you a lot as well. And I don't want to speak badly about any school that I went to, but this is just an example that I've used that it frustrated me when I was in graduate school at the University of Mississippi that I remember I found out, didn't even know this, I had to like find out through some backwards way that second years and higher in graduate school could pay to rent out this little closet space that's basically an office for them they can rent out in the library. And since I and my graduate program didn't have a desk on campus, I immediately jumped on that. Then I found out I wanted to go and get work done on a Saturday because this is graduate school. There's still work to be done on the weekends. And I remember parking on campus. It was like, I saw signs for the game, but figured I was okay. Like I'll park and go to the library. And then I get to the library doors and the library is closed because of game day. Yep. There's other, you know, pieces to that, that I've learned since then. So I don't want to simplify this and be like, okay, University of Mississippi, just only football libraries not open. That's bad. But here's the issue. It brings to light some of the other things to consider with an institution. One, what is the actual physical layout and parking setup? Part of why the campus is closed on those Saturdays is because the way the campus at that institution has been set up is they started in a central location in the town and had to build out. And so they're limited in the amount of space they have. So when they have a game day, they have to pretty much dedicate all of their area to parking because their alumni value those games a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other part is staffing for that library. Do they have that staff available? Are they able to get them on campus to staff the library to have them open on weekends? You know, a lot of universities, you'll see that around finals time, they'll change the hours that they have for their libraries. Um, but then they have different hours for the rest of the, you know, the semester. And so part of that is because it, they have to actually staff it with, again, limited funding that's been allocated to their librarians or whatever umbrella uh, department it's under. So, you know, that brings into question all of these other small things that have to be considered. Um, yes, there is that shocking symbolism there that really hit me and I was upset that I needed to get work done on a Saturday. It was game day and the library at the university is closed. Well, I remember since I went to the same place, I'll tell you two stories that really shocked the same thing for me. One was that you were not allowed to park on or even like in the commuter parking. So the parking slightly off campus 
after what was it 5 p.m on friday i think something like that <laughs> but there were classes at like 6 p.m on fridays and so essentially you couldn't park to get to your class on Friday nights. And so there was this huge culture where people actually just didn't go to class on game day Fridays, no matter what time of day it was. I remember when I started teaching there, I could not get students into their seats on game day weekends because it was such a part of the culture that not only was it okay for students, their parents backed them up. Um, it was definitely more of a place where parents were involved. Um, there's also a lot of universities where parents are not as much involved. So it really depends on kind of location for that. And the university backed them up. There was like nothing that I could do to get students into my class on certain days. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I noticed, our building, which I'm in psychology, most psychology buildings are pretty run down because we don't get a lot of funding in the social sciences, no matter how hard we try to be a STEM science. Um, and the building was pretty run down, but it was in a very central location on campus. And it was right where a lot of the game day activities were happening. And so they would leave it open for people to use the restroom. One game day weekend, so many people used the restrooms that when we came in on a Monday, the plumbing actually collapsed. And yeah. what was right above our secretary's office was a bathroom and the plumbing collapsed onto the secretary in her office. And so we tried very desperately to close the building after that so that it could not be used for game day restrooms because we couldn't even get people out to really fix it. It took, how long did it take to fix that bathroom? Like a year. Even fix it. <laughs> so we were trying to get people to fix it, but of course we're so low on the totem pole, we can't really get it fixed. We can't really like deal with it. And so our chair was like, we need to close this during the next game day because it obviously cannot support this. And they said, no, it has to remain open because it's in a central area on campus. And so that was really what hit me when I was like, oh, this is so important to the sustainability of this university that they literally don't care that literal shit fell on our secretary. Yeah, yes. And I think, and it's funny, my husband used to joke, I think, I don't know if it was like, basically said that like if the building was built, I think the Titanic hadn't even sunk yet. Or something like that. When the it car, was terrible. When the we had, had been laid. <laughs> I worked with little kids in this basement, this weird thing that we always felt super weird bringing kids to um, and parents. And one time a rat died in the wall and they're like, we can't do anything about it. You're just going to have to like mask the smell. And I'm like, how are we going to get parents to bring their like 18 month old child for an experiment in this place that smells like a dead rat. Oh, that was horrible. Anyways, oh, yeah. Yeah. I have been in other buildings that are much more modern and nice. So look at what level of funding your department has, even within what college are you in? So the university I'm in right now, when I started working here, we were in the College of Liberal Arts, and now we've moved to the College of Science. And they have different values, and they have different structures, and they have different things going on. And it's not the same as it was when we were in that College of Liberal Arts. And so there's all these hidden things that you don't necessarily know to look for. But we'll get to interviews later, because I do want to still have you talk about this article a little bit. But well, yeah, ask the graduate students what life is really like in that mm -hmm. place. You know, we would have told you coming in about the poop 
fiasco. We would have told you about the dead rat fiasco. And then we would have told you, but it's still such a great place to work because the people in the department were so great or, you know, our advisor was so great. So like, we still recommended you come despite some of that stuff. Where in other places, I might not have recommended that you come and like grad students, even though they're not going to exactly say that because their job could be on the line, they're going to give you hints. Yeah. And they're going to kind of talk about what may or may not work for you. And I think okay. the other thing getting into buildings before we sort of cap that part off is you can actually look at a university, even if you're looking at Google Images online, because you can't go there right now because of COVID, you can look at those buildings. And universities love to use it as like a marketing thing of construction means that we're a growing university. It's great. Things are wonderful. We have all these different buildings. But actually, it really tells you a lot when you look at which buildings are the newer ones. And true, you may need to ask and find out maybe that building that looks really old has already been earmarked as the next one. But you do need to sort of look at those things. And so sort of a comparison to University of Mississippi, the other, again, picking up Penn State because I went there, Penn State Psychology Building, I thought was amazing. It's this grand, really modern looking building. Um, and I remember, so my husband went to, you know, was at the same institution, was in the psychology program where, where Brittany was. And so when he went for his interview, I remember still being in Pennsylvania and talking to him on the phone and he was talking about the building and how kind of run down it was. And I was like, how is that possible? Because I was yeah. literally standing in this amazing, like newer building that somebody had donated to. Um, and of course it's got their name on it and everything. So, you know, you can really see a lot about what resources are available and even what kind of pull a college has at an institution, because maybe that building doesn't look perfect in the moment, but you can get an idea, um, you know, when you ask the right questions, does this college, the College of Liberal Arts or some other department, do they have, you know, what's their level of pull with the administration to get the resources that they need? Well, I remember one of the things that drew me to the University of Mississippi and specifically our department was they were very forthright with this with me at the interview. They said, you know what, we are on the bottom of the list for our building to be recovered, like redone. And honestly, the other buildings, something comes up with them all the time. So it's probably never going to get done. And it did not get done in the time I was there. Um, but our chair was so forthright with we are not high on this totem pole. But I'm advocating for students every single year. I don't get them a lot of money. We don't, we didn't have a lot for a stipend for you. But he increased that stipend every year. So yeah. not by a lot. It wasn't unfortunately able to be a ton. But I saw how dedicated our chair was to helping the students as much as possible. And I saw how honest they were about those things when other places would kind of try to hide it and be like, oh, we're on the list, right? So like, oh, I'm not telling you we're at the bottom of the list. Um, and so for me, again, those things were able to be overcome. I was, I appreciated other aspects of that department, the honesty, the fight mm -hmm. for us. Um, I also appreciated that they were um, collaborative. I, again, my story, essentially, I kind of lucked into my advisor because the person that I had originally applied to work with ended up leaving. And they were like, we still want you. You can start with this advisor. You can move around. You can work with other people. You will find something. You can make your own. And there's a lot of places that are not as collaborative as that. There are a lot of places that are competitive. There's a lot of places that are just kind of you do what we say. Um, and 
it, not to knock one versus the other. I needed that collaborative environment. Somebody else might thrive in a competitive environment. Somebody else might thrive in a you do what we say environment. The trick is to know what environment you need and what environment that university or that program is providing. Well, I think, you know, we get back into that conversation about the things that you should consider when going, you know, it gets into, so this is, we have a few blog posts. We can maybe even give you a list of the links to put at the bottom for your listeners. But um, we, you know, one of those is that information, that in interview is extremely important because you are also interviewing that school, whether it's college, grad school, because there are some college programs that have an interview as well for undergrad. Um, but particularly in grad school, there's usually an interview. And even if there isn't, have an informational interview, contact somebody, call them, email them, see if you can have some sort of conversation with somebody there. Um, even actually would be great is if you have multiple, somebody in the department, somebody who's attending as a student, somebody who's a university administrator or admissions or somebody, you know, who can cover all of those different aspects. And you can ask those hard questions. Because that, that's what is extremely important is to be able to ask these questions about um, to know, for example, that, yeah, the funding maybe not be there for this building. This building's not going to be updated, but I will advocate for you every day. And that makes a difference. So, you know, that is important to really use those interviews, talk to people um, about their experiences. The other things that you want to consider, um, it's not just, okay, does this building or this program have the resources, but just is this the right program for you? One, you know, first up, is grad school right for you? I think especially right now, I'm seeing a lot of people in the pandemic who are thinking, well, I can't get a job. I can't get this. I was thinking of changing anyway, my careers. Maybe I'll just go to grad school again. Okay. <laughs> Let's start there then. Why? Why are you going to grad school? Well, because I want to change careers. Okay. What jobs do you want? Have you looked at those job descriptions? Okay. Do they need that graduate degree? Is it possible to get, maybe step down a little and get a job, a lower level that, you know, you then can get the degree later, um, but you're focusing then on getting that experience that's more important. The other piece to it is considering what is it you need from that program? Is it that you need the network? Is it that you need the network for a specific area? Because then you don't need to be looking at, well, these are the top schools and these top programs of what I'm trying to go to in the country. You need to look at where are those schools and those programs that have the network for the area where you want to be? If you want to be a lawyer in, you know, Philadelphia, you may not want to go to law school in California. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but you have to sort of keep your eyes open to the fact that your network, if you go to law school in California, may have, you know, they're going to be focused in those areas. That's where your network is going to have the greatest pull to help you get all of those necessary um experiences and then eventually that job after law school <laughs> it's also not just you know um the network it's licensing i had a student saying well i want to go to school in new hampshire for teaching i'm like great i said is that where you want to teach and she goes no i want to teach in new york i'm like well when you go through that teaching your certification when you sit for the test it's going to be in new hampshire you're going to have to come back and either recertify you have to recertify and take the test again and take additional classes to recertify to teach in new york because she yeah. didn't realize that getting a teaching certificate varies by state by state because the tests are different depending on where you're going. So, and then I guess the same thing with law and a lot of other places, right? I don't know much about those. So the, bar, yeah. 
usually has a state component. So there's some states that now will let you sort of transfer things over. But for the most part, you have to sit for the bar in that state where you want to go. And I mean, a lot of places, like teaching, you can transfer from state to state, but you have to resit for another exam. And yeah. that's going to be another expense. You know, I mean, so I told my student, I'm like, if you really want to become a teacher in New York, go to a New York school for your, your, your teaching degree. And that way you'll already be certified that way you don't have to sit for another exam. And ultimately that's what she ended up doing. She's, she found a, a, she went to a state school that actually gave her good money, like a good scholarship. And because it's a state school, it's less tuition, but she's going to, when she finishes her program, she'll be certified to teach in New York. She'll be able to get a job, right? Without having to sit and wait for the recertification process. And, and the I mean, same my- thing college she was in law school at the time actually she went to law school in pennsylvania and she's a lawyer in california so it is possible it's just you have to go with your eyes open to the fact that you could potentially be you know you may have to do some extra work to prepare for example it's law school to sit for the bar in california um and then if you wanted to be you know a lawyer in multiple states you might potentially have to sit for the bar in each state the same thing happens with counseling therapy clinical psychology you have to recertify in every state you go to and it varies from state to state what you have to do. Sometimes you just have to take the other exam. Other times you have to take whole classes again. Other times, you know, the time commitment, the monetary commitment might be very different depending on which states you want to travel to. So if you already know, oh, I want to study in California and work in Pennsylvania, then you can do the research to see what it's going to take and see if that matches what you're willing to do. But a lot of students don't know where they're going to end up. And so I'm like, well, this is just something that you have to factor in that you're likely to need to do this certification again. It, and I, it's definitely more in just teaching counseling and law. I think there's other disciplines that also have certifications. Well, my dad's an engineer. I know he he had to get a certification, even though he, his he uh, his business is in New York. He has to certify in other in the tri-state area so he can do right. business in Jersey and Connecticut. And he said that the certification problem a process isn't hard it's just you know time consuming and expense yeah and then you have to work at the the professional development hours that he has to have for each individual state that he's in he's like you know those pd hours you know you know for uh the states vary so he's like you're just keeping track of everything it's right uh, so it's, it's long term you know you have to you have to like i don't like to recertify and to renew he was it's a lot of extra you know professional development that you have to be aware of Even the name of an institution and what that means is different in different areas. Correct. Uh, So I tend to talk more about the fact that I'm a Penn State alum. Um, Granted, the undergrad experience is entirely different. And so you tend to stick with your alma mater first for your undergrad. But at the same time, that's usually what shows up first on anything is my Penn State background. And that's because people in the Northeast, their eyes immediately go to Penn State. University of Mississippi doesn't really mean as much to people in the Northeast. And so that was something that I ran into when my husband and I were still living in the South. And we lived actually in a short span of a few years in Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia. And all of those places look at University of Mississippi, they immediately know it. They recognize it. Cool. In the Northeast, it doesn't have that same, that same ring to it. Um, Parvey also maybe has to do with the fact that University of Mississippi is an SEC school and Penn State's a Big Ten school, which is a whole different thing getting into the value of sports and higher ed again. Um, but, you know, it is true that like I, I have to reframe where how I talk about my experiences and where I've been at which institution to fit those conversations. And it's something that, you know, I hadn't considered ahead of time. Um, and I don't know if it would have changed my mind either, but I hadn't really considered 
in my plans of I'm going to move back up to the Northeast again eventually, that the fact that I went to University of Mississippi wasn't going to really do as much. Um, I thought it was more important that I had a master's, not that people are sitting there going, what's the University of Mississippi? You did what there? <laughs> right. I remember when I first went to Mississippi because everybody in the South, like you said, they know it, they value it. It's, you know, there's a whole different hierarchy there. And they would always, I was from California. And so they would always be like, oh, what do people in California think of us? And I'm like, I don't know who you are. <laughs> Most people, the only way I could tell people where I was going was saying it was from like Blindside, like the movie. Cause I was like, that was the only thing. And they were like, wait, what? Oh, that, that little piece of that movie. And like, nobody knew what I was taught. Like nobody knew the university. Nobody knew where I was going or what was happening. But then you get to the South and it's such a different valuation. And so it really is kind of where, and you can overcome them. Nobody cares that I went to University of Mississippi, even if they didn't hear it. They are just looking at that kind of PhD, at least in my field. Um, it wasn't, but if I were to apply to work as like an assistant professor at Yale or Harvard or Stanford, they might look at that differently than, you know, going somewhere else. Um, but do I want to work at places like Yale, Harvard, and Stanford? No, I want to work at places that value kind of the same things that I value and, and things. And so I think kind of this all feels so overwhelming again, like thinking of all these things we have to consider that we don't know what to consider. I think the biggest thing that I'm hearing from you guys, and you can back me up or tell me if I'm wrong, is really, again, this idea of trying to work backwards, figuring out what career that you want so that you can dive into that one. Do I need licensing? Do I need this? What do I need? What schools are valuable for this career? What what do I need for this specific one? Because then you can, you know, we're talking about multiple careers here. We're talking about multiple different avenues here, and that is overwhelming. But if you know which career you're going into, then you can figure out all of those little things and figure out what you value versus what other places are valuing and kind of what your trajectory needs to be. That's part of why Holly and I started Flourishing Professional was we can help because this is really overwhelming. Even this conversation, I know that the listeners are probably okay. And I even consider this thing, but this thing doesn't mean that thing. <laughs> you know, part of why we started Flourishing Professional is to actually help people sit down and figure out for their specific path, what is that trajectory? What are those goals and values? How does that align with where you're going? And how do we help you consider all of the things that are going to matter for you when you're considering whether or not to apply to a graduate program or apply to a job or whether or not you're going to take that job? Well, I also think that one of the things in Flourishing Professional, we can help you. Um, we talked back at the beginning of this podcast about the hidden curriculum. You know, we can start to help you uncover like what was the hidden curriculum and still about the curriculum that doesn't work for you. And, you know, then you can start to think about um, what do I want, not what is expected of me. I know we talk about, you know, being happy in life. And, you know, part of that is knowing what you want, not what's expected. Um, and then we can help you tease it out. Because a school, like I went to, one of my schools I went to was because it was expected of me to go. It was the best school right. for my particular degree. Um, I had a, pretty much everyone in my family went there. So and it was great. It was a totally the wrong school for me completely the wrong school for me but one of the other schools i went to i picked um 
much to the chagrin of some other people in my family, and it was the perfect fit for me. It's when people ask right. me what school I go to, that's the school I'm like, yeah, that's the one I'm willing to like support the alumni association. But the other one, I'm like, it was such a values mismatch, even though it was a perfect fit for my siblings. It, they worked very well. That it worked. They, one of my sister actually excelled, and you know, it was really the best environment for her. But so, I, it was wrong for me because even though we we have the same set of values, we're not the same person. Right. I absolutely love this idea of what works for you versus what's expected of you. I think not only in career, but in life, like this is something I'm disentangling in therapy right now is what's expected of me versus what we're do I actually to, want? <laughs> no, but like, you know, we're, we're always working on these types of things. Right. And um, I remember my therapist the other day, she's like, when's the last time you were like truly, truly happy. And we broke it down to, Oh, that was the time where I was doing what I wanted, not what I thought was expected. Um, and so bringing it back to like life, you also need that for your career and kind of bringing to our earlier conversation of it's so expected to go to school. It's so expected for at least my career field to go to graduate school. But is that what you really want? And is that what you really need? Yeah, I mean, you might just it might just be that you need to learn a couple new skills. Okay. Is it something you pay $10 on Udemy online and take a course? Because I I love those. I think I give too much money to you to me, probably. Um, but that they have a lot of great courses there. There are all of those sites now where you can get pretty affordable courses to teach you a couple of things, and you can figure out how to apply them in your current setting. And then there's also getting a certification. You know, maybe you do need the, something a little more formal, but do you need the full master's or doctoral degree? Maybe it's just, you know, completing some sort of program that's a year long and you get the certification certification at the end and there's also going back to the udemy classes there's plenty of colleges like um you can like free online classes so if you're not sure you could actually get a a sense of the coursework by taking a free class online right. in different disciplines you know to see like what do i like this or do i i mean you might go in hey i really want to become you know x y and z and then decide after taking a few online classes going oh maybe this is not quite what i thought the field was Right. You know, and then decide to course correct going, wait, before I en enroll and commit myself to a, a, a degree in this particular field, take a few classes, I guess, unseen or one or two, even just an introductory one that's free online can help you determine right. if that's really what you anticipated. Like, cause I know, like, say like anthropology, like, you know, people think it's one thing and then you take a class and it's like, well, that's not what I expected. It's like, well, that's not really what the, the that particular field is. You know, I, happens I, all I, the time in psychology. Well, it happens <laughs> in psychology, it happens in education. People are like, wow, Absolutely. education is surprisingly hard. I'm like, well, yeah. It's And I think a lot of it's like the way it's portrayed, portrayed on TV is not the way it is in reality. Yes. No, I don't think there's a – I was like, is there a single job that's portrayed well on TV? Because I feel like there's not. No, but I think that people get a misconception. curriculum. There's a misconception. Oh, yeah. You know that you know college is this way based on you know movies and that schools yep. are this way based on movies and it's like um you know ours is we like indiana jones that's that's not what archaeology is <laughs> right ours is um criminal profiling everybody that can't like i swear at least a 90 percent of our incoming freshmen say that they want to be criminal profilers and i'm like well psychology is not going to get you there stop like you need to go to criminal justice. Like you need to go become a cop. And they're like, what? I don't want to be a cop. I just want to be like this cool person on TV. And I'm like, not how it works. Um, but it's exactly who's missing. But not oh, I did too. We all did. I, I did psychology and criminology. 
I mean, I wanted, I had a little bit more of a focused idea of what I wanted to do, but it still was, I'm going to go and have this double major and then do whatever I need to. And then I realized that's the other thing too, is you need to give yourself the time and space to grow developmentally, especially a traditional age, college age student. You're 18 when you get to college. It's okay that what you showed up at college on day one saying you were going to do, is it what you end up doing in the end? And it's okay if you're 30 and go back to school and think you're going from something. And it's like, actually, no, I think this one class I took last year was actually way better. I think I want to major in that. Do it. I change my mind like every six months on what I want to do with my life. I'm still changing my mind. I mean, I'm in my career and I love my career, but like, I'm still, we were just talking before we like hit record about how we're all three of us are kind of doing different branches now too, to bring in different income streams and explore different areas of what we're interested in. And so you can, you're constantly evolving even after school. We're still figuring it all out. And it's funny. (laughs) I, uh, I I like to joke now with a lot of people because I don't really have that one full-time job that I can say I'm doing this thing anymore. Like I'm doing a billion things. And so my quick response these days has just been, I'm a suburban housewife. <laughs> um, <laughs> people get a few chuckles. All right. Well, I'm just self-employed. You know, I've never worked a quote, real job. <laughs> I just start businesses. I just say teacher. Depends <laughs> on my mood. <laughs> Somebody had, I don't remember who it was on LinkedIn. I saw recently. It was like a, I'll have to see if I can find it. It was like a link to something where you click it and it's almost like rolling a dice to give you some creative job title because there's like a new trend and coming up with like your own fancy job titles. Um, they're, they were pretty funny ones. Like lead dream catcher. <laughs> <laughs> well, and like th- the idea of thinking about what you want to do, I recommend to students in advising almost daily to take this career test that our university puts on, right? So it's online, it's easy, it's just this you know, those career tests you take like in high school where they try to tell you what you might want to be. It's a little bit better because it also takes into account personality, life factors, you know, do you want a nine to five? Do you want to live somewhere specific? Those types of things. And so I recommend it to them all the time. And one day I was like, I should take this and see if like I'm in the right career or if there's something else that's like calling me out there. And so I just took it like probably two weeks ago. Um, so even when you're in your career, you can still be kind of playing around and bouncing around. And the important thing to remember about those assessments, though, is they're a really good place to like a jumping off Start. Place. Yeah, yes. it's a starting place. And it doesn't always have to be right. You don't have to follow it. But like, you know, it gave me several suggestions where I was like, oh, I do want to be all of these things. So it did find me out kind of exciting. But like one of them was like an ambassador. And I'm like, well, I'm probably not going to go off and do that right now. Um, but. Maybe if I get famous, because famous people become ambassadors all the time, don't they? I guess what a lot of people have to realize is that there is no wrong answers when you're choosing what you want to do with your life. I mean, what you want to do is right for you. So it's not like right or wrong when you're choosing a school. Right. Yeah. It's hard to not get into like the philosophical ideas of like, well, do I make my own luck and create my own fate or is this destiny kind of thing? Because it's... The thing about a career path is it's not linear. It never is. It really never is, um, despite what, you know, this sort of dream that people think they've been promised. I I think it used to be. I think this is my pet theory, and I have no data to back it up. So please be aware that I'm just suggesting things out of thin air. But I think part of the reason we have, like, 
this issue as well as kind of that expectation that you go to college is because a lot of our advice is coming from people who lived during a very different time where, you know, my mom's generation, you go to work for the same place for 50 years, you retire. Um, You know, during my mom's generation, it was the beginning of when people were going to college. So she saw friends going to college, they got careers right out of the gate, right? And so we're hearing a lot of advice from people who lived during a very different time. And right now, that's not how it works. Like, nobody stays with a job for 40, 50 years anymore. At least I don't, I don't know, unless they're a boomer. Um, You know, millennials, I don't know anybody that stayed in the same job. I just don't know anybody. Um, and so get a bad rap for job hopping, but the thing is that one job can't take care of you anymore no. the way it could in the past where that one job you'd be covered. You'd be able to afford your medical bills, at least to an extent, be able to afford your medical bills right. or, you know, the car, the house, your kids, that one job doesn't take care of you anymore. Or it's like and- looking at my parents' house. They have like the house that I would love to, to own. It cost them like $200,000. That same house now would cost me like 800,000. And that's like a good jump. Like my my neighborhood that I just moved into in July, I moved into this house in July. Um, My house has already appreciated $40,000. How long is that? July, August, September, October, November, December. That's six months. I've grown $40,000 on this house, which by the way, buy real estate right now because you can make a lot of money. But my goal was, okay, well, this is like the lower level house in the neighborhood that I want. But five years from now, I can afford that one two streets up that's, you know, 700,000. Well, that same house that's now 700,000, two years ago, it sold for 440. So it jumped $200,000 in two years. If you own that house, amazing. But if you're trying to buy into this, it's impossible. Like, I don't know these stats exactly, but I remember seeing online a few days ago, it was something like at, at our same age, at our same stage, like boomers used to own like 50% of the nation's wealth and now millennials own about 20%. And then something ridiculous, like we only control like 5% of like the nation's wealth or something. Essentially, what boomers had at our age was more money and more control. And there wasn't this wide of a gap as there is now. And so it's a little bit harder to make as much money. And also companies are not as loyal to us anymore as well. And so that's what my mom and I always get in a fight, boomer versus millennial. She's like, I don't understand why like employees aren't as loyal anymore. And I'm like, well, one, we don't put up with bullshit. um, (laughs) Because we're being treated like crap. And we're not going to take it anymore. Because we're not being paid enough. If I could afford the house that my mom got, of course I'd suck it up and work ethic, whatever you tell me. Of course I'd suck up whatever they're giving me. I could afford a house and I could afford vacations and I could afford stuff. But when you're not paying me enough to be able to afford those things, why am I going to stick around with mistreatment? And the other thing is there aren't the same clear promotion paths anymore. These, you know, these businesses just don't have what they used to either of this clear path for somebody that they're promoted over time. You like millennials and Gen Z's are job hoppers because you're not going to get the pay raise. You're not going to get the promotions unless you're there for like 20 years. Like, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, um, but, you know, people who switch jobs after a couple of years end up with a higher jump in pay over time 
than those who stayed longer with those yep. other institutions. They're actually staying longer is actually miss you're missing out on those pay jumps. Yeah. That's that's what's crazy. So it's like these companies are upset and they want loyalty from millennials and Gen Z, but they, they literally miss out money. on pay. They literally <laughs> miss out on those pay jumps. Well it's like my 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 current position, I get a chance at um, two pay raises, so I can go to three levels. I know exactly what my cap income is going to be at this career. And so I know that from day one. So just like you're saying, if somebody else is going to come and offer me the same job at a higher rate, why would I stay? Right. I mean, you kind of have to move out to move up. Sometimes. And that's, and that's sad too, because I think, you know, again, millennial and Gen Z get this bad rap about it. It's like, we would love to stay in one place. We would, we would love to stay in one place where the money takes care of everything we need and that's it. But it just I'd also exist. like to be able to afford a vacation yeah. for the first time ever, <laughs> you know? So, all right. Well, I really wanted to talk about like networking and stuff. So I'm going to have to have you guys on for a third time because I know my students always ask about networking and we didn't quite get a chance to get there. Um, but is there anything else kind of last minute that you'd like to? Well, I look forward to another discussion on networking because that is already has a, has a huge topic. Um, and we can share all of these fun little tricks about experimenting with LinkedIn. I've done a lot of that the past uh, year, but right now, um, the biggest thing is, you know, just sort of reiterate that the reason why Holly and I started Flourishing Professional was to help, you know, cut down that overwhelming list of the things that you have to navigate in the hidden curriculum, understand those norms, um, you know, in, in higher ed specifically, but, you know, and also how to figure out if that's the right program for you, if you should go to that program, you know, all of those things you need to consider when looking at graduate school or even looking at a job opportunity. So, you know, we understand it's overwhelming and that's part of why we're here is to help break that down. All right. I'm not going to stop recording just because last time we talked about so much stuff afterwards that I wanted to keep in the show. So I'm just going to keep it recording till we're like totally done. But, but yeah, I know all of my students constantly ask about networking because Gen Z has super high anxiety. I was going to um, say that's a big one. And so they don't know, well, how do I network if I'm too scared to talk to people? And I'm like, well, I got you because I'm too scared to talk to people and I network the crap out of the internet. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like that's what my, I'm like, they, for me, social media and the internet is like a major way to network when you're kind of scared. And I know that that's not the only way. Like I know there's a bunch of others, so. But right now with the pandemic, it's completely changed too. Right. Um, and it's funny, like I was experimenting with LinkedIn these past few months because basically I guess it was like June or July when I was first starting this other job search again. And I had a conversation with someone and they kind of just like ripped apart my LinkedIn. And I was like, it was good. It was actually helpful, but it, it kind of threw me for a little bit because I was like, why, why, why am I being judged right now by this like LinkedIn? Like I don't need it that much. I haven't needed it this much before. And immediately they're like, you only have like a hundred connections. You should have like 500 because when you hit 500, then LinkedIn says 500 plus. It doesn't put the number up there anymore. Right. But I will say that, you know, it's not necessarily correct, but it does bring into, you know, bring up a conversation around some of the perceptions and the fact that it's kind of hard to shy away from, you know, your brand presence on social media is that same presence. You can't just separate it anymore. And yeah. so the fact that somebody doesn't have a LinkedIn that they're actively using 
depending on what field they're looking at could impact them, especially if yeah. you're looking and at startup, They're like, well, if you don't have 500 connections, then is there a problem with your ability to network? Are you going to be able to come up with leads to help recruit? Because even if you're not a recruiter, you're still like recruiting. Yeah. I mean, it's important now, like just what I've been looking in from writing a book, like to be able to get your book published, you have to have a social network following enough to be able, I think it's, they do that in like acting and stuff too. Like you get better acting jobs if you already have a social media following um, because they have to advertise, like it's easier to advertise and, um, and like, it's different for different crews. So academia, nobody, like people are starting to use LinkedIn, I think now, but they don't really use it. Um, I'm trying to get in on TikTok because of like, that's where my students told me to really advertise for the podcast. And um, you have to have a certain number of followers before you're allowed to go live. Right. And so like all these little tricks. Well, social media. LinkedIn and academia. In it. Yeah. I wrote a whole post about it. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Think of it as like, if you look at it, academia for LinkedIn for academics, like LinkedIn is perfect for us because it creates a night. It's almost like a CV more than anything else. So it's a great way to show off your work without showing off your work, you know, like without being hi, you know, but it's basically like it's set up like a CV. So they said, it's almost like it lended itself to academia like really, really well. And there's different tricks that academics can do to like, you know, follow your favorite research. You know, you can kind of get, because a lot of institutions post their jobs on social media for the board. So if you're on LinkedIn, you'll get those certifications before other people. Right. And I mean, LinkedIn is set up to like, it's expected that you're showcasing your stuff. Like there are algorithms set up that the things that you write are featured higher. If you write like a blog post on LinkedIn with their like article thing. I saw a friend do that. And then I tried to, I was like, Oh, I didn't even know that was a possibility. Like it's so hard to keep everything straight with also doing like my normal job. It is. It's, it's, it could be a job in and of itself. Like it takes so much time. That's what I wish. Why I haven't done as much flourishing professional stuff on LinkedIn is just trying to get even one LinkedIn account up and working oh, yeah. everything. Because it is a great way. Like it's not supposed to be a static, you know, like originally I used to think of it as, okay, I'll just put my resume up online and it's a, you know, cool, quick way that somebody can click on, you know, LinkedIn and see my resume. But it's actually not supposed to be so static. Like you're supposed to yeah. be constantly updating and changing and sharing your work use it as a portfolio put up those slides or a presentation as long as it's not like a copyright issue um you know because institutions love to take ownership of things but you know put up those slides put up whatever it is share a little piece of it online because that way somebody you know the first thing they do now is they're going to look for you online like that's just the reality if somebody gets a resume even in academia they do this they look for you online if you pop up on linkedin and they can see these things you've done well that's even better I know I try, I, I've been trying a little bit more in mine because I have some friends that use it a lot more. And so I try to mimic them. But like, the only thing I really keep up with is my Twitter because that's where I do most of my networking. Um, I got to work on the other one. Well, we're talking about social media and we just talked about, you know, anxiety in Generation Z. And, but that's why it's a double edged sword. You know, social media is great, but the problem is the social media, it's made the, it's made you on 24 seven, you know, like right. if you do something to step out of line, it's on the internet forever. So, I mean, I personally am grateful that, you know, I was a, you know, a kid that I got to do my, my stupid phase of my life, you know, teenagers and twenties before social media. Cause right. I, I know cause kids, you know, I also think that I have, since I work with students, especially adolescents, they said they're so afraid of always being judged. 
because you know if you look at like the comments they are cesspool in a way you know you think about it people are cruel so i couldn't imagine being judged during like my formative but, years but they live of, like, online and oh. they're commented so and they wonder why like there's a rise of social media i mean well uh, of social anxiety i'm like well if you live in an environment where there is no safe place where you're being judged from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, that's not even safe when you're in bed because people are still posting while you're asleep. Like, exactly. oh like there's, a, there's a, did you guys ever, I don't know if you guys watch Family Guy, but my husband's a fan, but I watched this one episode where the dog had posted something on Twitter, went to the movie and came back and he was completely flamed and his whole family got in trouble because he posted oh, something, you know, and it's like, but even though love or hate the show, um, that is yeah. true. You know, you post up something and, you know, look what happened, you know, in the political situation with Twitter. Right. Well, and I saw also, you know, <laughs> something interesting on the flip side was that I was at like a networking event not that long ago online and uh, basically businesses were like, they were talking about how it's like, I don't understand. We did some research and like millennials and Gen Z's like don't want to use this technology at work. I don't understand why. Like they use it all the time, yet they can't somehow see that we would use it at work. And I'm like, because there's a whole other like, like there was sort of a dip. There was like, okay, technology was created. Everybody was afraid. And then there was like kind of the beginning of millennials where we were like, we're learning all the etiquette issues. That's when we like had to delete all the photos off MySpace. But now like younger millennials and Gen Z, they have like three Facebooks. They have one that's their professional Facebook. And then they have the other that's the private one with all of their other stuff. So like the fact that suddenly they're expected to now take the things that are meant to be sort of personal, even though they're still public and now use it for work is like, why are you asking me to do that? <laughs> well, I think that what happens is there's two roles. We talk about hitting curriculums. There's two separate worlds now. Absolutely. We have our real life world of our real life hitting curriculum. And then you have a whole other world. You have the virtual world with the virtual hitting curriculum and the virtual social like etiquette. And it collides so greatly. There's such a big, like they, there's such a big disparity between like, you know, the social culture and the virtual culture and the in real life culture. And I think it creates a lot of tension and, you know, confusion, you know, it's like, well, but, I mean, I can even relate to that sort of feeling a little bit of like, wait, my job wants me to use TikTok at work. I'm like, I'm sorry. Actually, I actually don't even use TikTok, but you know, like my <laughs> job wants me to use TikTok at work. Like TikTok's supposed to be the thing I do with my friends. Like I don't want to be spending twice the amount of time on TikTok and then having to create a separate identity on TikTok just for work. Well, and then there's also the that monitoring too. I just came across a TikTok yesterday of this girl was like, why do I have to like, why am I fired for a TikTok when I'm talking about a personal experience of me? It's that what Holly was saying, it's hard to separate now your personal from your professional when like, you can find both of them. And so your personal, even your personal TikTok has to be professional enough that you don't get fired. And so essentially, this is going to sound very millennial of me. Capitalism has run so far rampant that now our personal lives, because we are living our personal lives on social media, our personal lives are now governed by the corporate, by corporations and by our employers and by all of this stuff. And so we can't be, you know, both. So like, I don't have personal, personal social media anymore because I can't navigate those two worlds. So I only have professional social media that bleeds a little bit into like my own stuff. It, how do we ask a 20 something year old person to navigate that? I can barely navigate it at 34. Like it's, but they do it. They're better sometimes in it than we are. Like there are, like I said, I know plenty of 18 year olds where they'll have like two Facebooks. They have yeah. one that's completely 
completely, completely private. Well, it's because they've been like, hiding those Facebooks from their parents for so long. Like, they know how to do it. But then I have the one that's their professional one. But yeah, like that's yeah. the thing is like have that. Whereas, yeah, I mean, I think I'm just figuring out what that looks like and what my online brand is and all that. But I mean, everything's yeah. blended at this point. But I mean, I remember yelling at, like, I got really ticked off at, this is my husband's ex when they were dating in college because I had put something up related to some of the sexual misconduct, like at victim advocacy stuff that I was doing. And she made a joke that was well-intentioned, but it was just not the place to comment. <laughs> and it was on my Facebook. Like, it was just my regular Facebook. And I, like, sent her messages, like, what is she doing right now? I can't deal with this. And I made a comment to her and she got, like, really upset about it. But I was like, this is, like... I can't have comments like this when I'm looking at at that time potentially getting jobs related to that. And the question is, is it that brings up a bigger ethical issue? Is it fair that you have to always be presenting a false face or a no. modified face and not being true to yourself? I mean, we're sitting there talking about being true to ourselves and true to our values, but yet then on the flip side, we just say, oh, but you do have to be mindful of keeping your public mask on 24-7. I mean, is that fair? I mean, well, that's exactly that's exactly where what the lines, where the lines, where the lines saying, you know, why should I have to have, you know, accept three different Facebook accounts? What right does the, does my employer have to fire me over, you know, my pictures from, you know, my brother's wedding five years ago, you know? Well, and the problem is even with those three different accounts, I feel like a lot of times they can still end up find finding the one from your personal. And so even your personal account has to be monitored. And that seems insane so then, then it's basically like we're splitting now our personalities into different masks it's like you want to be true i mean no authenticity authentic leadership is a big thing in business but yet now you're asking us not to be authentic right it's also a double standard in the sense that you have and again not to get into the whole boomer millennial thing but just you have people now who are you know holding younger generations accountable granted they should be held accountable for mistakes that they made i'm not saying that you know there should be a pass for some stuff, but it's like they're literally getting in trouble and having all these negative consequences for basically doing the same exact thing that other generations did. The only difference is Gen, it's on camera. <laughs> Gen Z does a lot less worse things than any other generation before, right? Yes. They drink less, they party less, they do all because this stuff. Less. They're afraid. Because it's all out there. Yeah. You know, the, I love when boomers try to tell me like what I, I'm like, dude, I know what you did when you were a teenager. It was <laughs> not. Back in my day stories to know exactly what you were doing. I'm like, I saw your yearbooks and the people, the things that people commented on that. Like, I know exactly how much weed you were selling and smoking. Stop lecturing me. Because it's, like, it's being young. You know, you got to do it in peace. I like the problem is, is that we're so monitored that you're like, oh, you have to, you have to perform a certain way and you have to, like you said, have that mask on and you have to constantly be at this elevate, like I get nervous just liking certain things on Twitter. Cause I'm like, Me is too. my, I'm yes. like, well, what if I like this and my employer sees it and I'm on non-tenure track, they're going to be like, it's, this isn't worth it. You're done. Like, Hey everyone, Brittany here popping in real quick to let you know that this is the part where our conversation kind of switches abruptly because we went off on a tangent. So sorry for the abrupt switch in content, but we'll get right back to navigating networking right now you didn't get to where you were on your own. Like you're, it's like Kylie Jenner. I was just singing this the other day, like Kylie Jenner telling us that she's like self-made. I'm like, you're not self-made. Like you can, you were on a reality show when you were a teenager, no job you have, you could never be self-made because you, there was a decision there that was made before you had the chance to make one. 
that gives you a platform that nobody else has. You will never be self-made. And it doesn't mean you don't work hard. It doesn't mean that you didn't build up your own company. It just means that you're not self-made. But that's the problem is that these people think they're self-made. And so they're like, well, why can't you do this? Yeah. Well, I wasn't on a reality show when yeah, I was 15. Sorry, I wasn't on a reality show. Uh, my parents, like, I don't have millionaire parents. My parents aren't friends with all of the top like fashion designers and companies. Like they can't set up a meeting, to, you know, they can't make a phone call right now and say, okay, cool. You got a meeting with, you know, uh, Mark Jacobs tomorrow. Like, well, it's like actors, like actors, kids that are like, I just want to be taken seriously. Like I, I didn't get to where I am because of my parents. And I was like, yes, you did. I, I admit that you probably, you work hard. Like, I think we conflate this idea of like self-made with working hard. It's like, I'm not saying that you don't deserve what you're doing. You are a good actor. I'm not saying that you're not a good actor and that you don't deserve and that you haven't put in your time. But I have, I tried to be an actress when I was little, but I had no idea how to go to an audition. I had no idea where auditions were. I had no idea how all this stuff worked. You already have that base knowledge. So even if your parents don't give you the meeting, you still know how to find the meeting. You still know how to prepare for the meeting in a way that somebody else doesn't. I mean, I had a little bit more than that. I had the two agents in New York, but there was the other issue of I was leaving school on the drop of a hat and my mother hated that she was taking me into the city on the dime and like constantly sitting in the traffic for her and all of the craziness to maybe, maybe not get something and then right. also potentially missing school for it. So there's always that gamble of it as well. Um, so even with all those resources, it's like, okay, but is that enough? Like I would go to these auditions with yeah. kids whose parents already were, had those connections. I mean, we're like, like, I remember we're I, early about cultural and social capital. I mean, think about it. Your family will engender you with a certain level of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I went to an audition for like, it was just for, it wasn't even a real audition. It was like for um, a talent agency kind of thing. And my parents had no idea what to do. They did my like full hair and makeup in a way that I have never even had done since. It was atrocious. Like if I, I know I had that tape lingering around for somewhere. If I find that I'm going to burn it, but I, it looks horrible. And then like, I get there and she's like, oh, like, like luckily she was super nice. She's like, you're supposed to come super plain to like an audition. And I was like, well, this audition I'm not getting because I already like didn't get there. Luckily she took the time to like tell me, I mean, I never went anywhere else because I was so. Not that I was a cooperative child ever, because I'm stubborn, and to this day, my mother will tell you how stubborn I was. But my mother grew up as a performer. She was like a twirler and a dancer, all that. And so, like, when I started doing auditions, she loved it, was like so excited. But I won't forget, we did something in town, and like, I actually did record a CD, because just like I sang, you know, it was like, Let Me Entertain You uh, from Gypsy. And I remember my mom had made a costume, and she was like so adamant that I had to wear the costume to the recording studio. And granted, like, even if it wasn't a recording studio, I probably would have been the stubborn pain, pain the butt child fighting her on everything anyway. But I remember telling her, like, you don't wear this to the studio. Like, I don't need to wear this. I just remember that it was, like, such a fight to be like, I don't need to wear this costume. <laughs> well, and I think, like, my mom's in the travel agency. But, like, if I had wanted to go into travel, the stuff I could have learned, like, from her who had built a successful business, it would have been so much easier than going first gen into something else that, like, I mean, my parents didn't even go to college. They have no idea what any of this stuff is. And so you have to figure it all out on your own. Well, I'm so lucky to have Holly for the business right now because she has like grown up with a whole bunch of entrepreneurs. She owns all these businesses. <laughs> and so it's like 
almost second nature in some of the aspects of it. Whereas like for me, I'm like, okay, we're doing this thing now. I feel like I need to wait longer before we do this. I'm not ready yet. No, I'm ready to push Melissa um, (laughs) off the cliff because it's like, you can only sit, it's like, we're kind of like at a pool swimming pool analogy. Like we're like, you know, she's sitting there with the water wings and I'm like running the deep end. I'm not ready to like, just like be that person who goes into the water. It's because like I grew up, but I have the connections. I mean, I think Melissa, you're probably surprised by the, the network business connections I'm able to like surround myself with. Yeah. You know, and not even just me. Like I mentioned my, I asked my dad one question. He goes, Oh, well, so I called my other friend who has all these other connections and he wants right. to talk to you. And, and all it was is one phone call from my dad, you know, and I didn't even ask him to do it. I asked my dad for one question. He goes, well, I don't know. I'm going to ask my buddy. And so it's snowballs. I get one of our earlier conversations. I'm like, okay, I think we're almost at the point where you should probably be looking into, you know, talking to an accountant or a lawyer. And Holly's like, oh, yeah, I got them. I already had a conversation with these people here. These are going to be our people. I'm like, well, great. <laughs> I have backups and two backups of those people. Like, I'm like. Well, this is like, it goes back to networking. Like, it snowballs. When you meet someone, they introduce you. Like. Even just the person who's um, Claudio Rezano, the one that um, the episode that's premiering today, actually, he was amazing. And he was like, I've got like these three, four other people, like, let me reach out to them and they're going to go on to yours. And so that like snowballed a few extra people. And, you know, it's like Twitter, I'll talk to somebody and they'll be like, oh, you should meet up with like this person. And so it can really snowball mm-hmm. when you're kind of genuine and you're trying to meet people for the right reasons or even for business reasons or whatever. Um, But it really, I feel like just networking is so much more important than anybody ever told me because that's how you overcome this first gen idea. If I had known way more people in academia, I would have known more things earlier and like how to approach things. And I wouldn't have had to learn the harder, longer way. Like I remember when I was studying at Harvard, we were like walking back to campus after lunch and the thing like these people were talking about, like they they were grad students and they were just like, Oh yeah. Like I remember when my dad taught me coding when I was like five and like all this stuff. And I was like, I still have to explain what the internet is to my dad. Like he does not understand that he can log into his email from like different computers. Like it makes no sense to him. And so I was just like, this is the world of difference between me and people at Harvard is that, you know, these people grew up with people teaching them how to code and teaching them this world. Mm -hmm. And it's taking me, it's taken me this long to get to a level kind of similar to where they started. So of course I'm not going to Harvard. Like I, I'm like five years behind these people because of what I didn't know kind of going in. And I think networking is one of those areas where you can kind of bridge that gap a little bit. I grew up on the fringes. Like I wish I had, and no, this isn't something anybody could have told me. I just did not understand it. And I probably being again, the stubborn kid that I was, didn't care to. I wish I had realized though, how important networking was because I grew up on the fringes of it. I literally switched high schools part of my way through to a high school that I appreciate the education for, but didn't like the social aspects because I struggled to fit in socially. And I realized that now in hindsight, you know, if I had been able to truly understand what it would have meant to be building those connections at that institution, I mean, I don't know what else I could have maybe learned. Uh, and and not to like sort of do the whole name drop thing, although it is pretty cool. There are some pretty big name people who went to that school um, 
and my brother was in with those. And I won't forget one of the times that we were having some kind of party. I don't know if it was my brother's birthday party, but one of his friends actually had to leave early because her dad and another couple had like planned this quick ski trip or something. I had to like hop on a plane and go. And they're hanging out with the guy who created the Nook. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think a lot of times it's it's a fallacy in K through 12 because the those your social skills are developed when you're young and you're focusing so much on academic that they've dropped out a bit of the social stuff. I mean, you learn right. so much in your younger years on the playground. Yeah. You know, and if you're taking that out, um, people, you're going to lose a whole valuable, especially conflict resolution. Yes. And more importantly, yeah. how to make friends and move around different circles. I remember when I was in school, in the elementary like school, I used to lead games on the playground. But yeah, it's, there's so much networking and trying to figure out how, you know, how to get there, or even just finding the right person who is caring enough in a certain situation to say, hey, in this setting, like, you know, typically, and not, and it's not to get into the issues of we need to change some of these norms, just understanding what those norms already are is like, right. don't wear dresses with pockets, because it's apparently like an issue with how they're shaped, or something like that, where I was like, that shouldn't be a thing. I'm like, it shouldn't, but it is. <laughs> I guess people also don't realize of networking. Networking happens all the time. Like you never know. Like I was in the yeah. pool, like I swim. So like the guy who always steals my lane, I asked him, I'm like, one day I talked to him and he was playing this music and it turns out he's a patron of the arts and I'm a, I'm a classical musician. I play in an orchestra and now we've become friends and he's introduced me to his network because he's the type of person who will put this all because I had the nerve to just say hello and ask him about the music, even though up to this point, I'm like, this is the guy who steals my lane every week. You know, yeah. <laughs> and then it turns out why I'm like, well, we can just switch lanes. It's not a problem. I don't mind, but it's like, you know, something as small as the night the guy in the in the pool ended up being a resource you know yeah. for my career without even realizing it so i mean how many people do you interact with on a daily basis you don't know they could be the next best thing in your network yeah well even right now holly and i have both jumped in on a really cool project um with a company that's in england and another organization called lmd cares for learning and development professionals who are trying to get into the field and do some professional development stuff. I went to an event with l and Cares just looking to network and meet some people in the learning and development world and human resources world from sort of that personal separate career path. And then actually it turns out there's this whole other opportunity for Holly and I to jump in together with doing something with Flourishing Professional. Um, so, you know, it's like you never know what you can get from some of these conversations or you yeah. can offer somebody. It's like you always have to kind of be in the back of your head networking. And what I actually like about that, though, is when I first learned that, like, networking doesn't have to be, like, a tit-for-tat thing. Like, I need to get this out of you. You need. When I learned that networking could just be trying to make new friends or just literally reaching out to somebody on Twitter saying, I love your book, and that could be networking, that changed my whole world because I was like, well, I want to I want to know more about everybody else. I want to be friends with everybody else. I can just ask them questions about themselves. Like, I didn't know that was part of networking and how easy that could be. I mean, it could be something as silly as like, you know, um, I, I, I back to swimming. I, I don't have prescription goggles and I ran run into a lane line. And it turns out that the guy who I crashed into um, gave me advice on how to fix my goggles. But it turns out. He's also in the same network subsidiary to another network I'm in. So he's like, hey, let's become friends on Facebook. And now his network is now merging with my network. 
all yeah. because I couldn't see and rammed into him while swimming. So you never know. It could be like the smallest like interaction, you know. Yeah. Well, and it's also easy. So like for me, like with students, they get really nervous, which I totally understand. But I'm like, hey, if you're reading things from a researcher that you might want to work with in the future, like academics are ego driven, just like anybody else. We love when Even people more come. So. <laughs> yeah. We love when people are like, hey, I read your work and I really liked it. Like, that's the best email of like our lives. And so if that's all you want to say, just email that and you're probably going to get a conversation. And if you don't and they're a turd, you don't want to work with that person anyway. So now you figured out that you don't want to work with that person. So you're still benefiting. So just send them a quick email saying, hey, I read your paper on blah, blah, blah. And I thought it was really good. That's it. That's all you have to do to kind of start a connection or do that on Twitter or whatever. It could be as easy as that. Yeah, because, you know, academics really love validation and our work is usually so dry that no one reads it. So, like, I know... And it's also criticized at every point. Yeah, so, exactly. like, like I remember the criticism. One of the people in the L&D group, she sent me um her master's thesis and I read it and I wrote back to her and said, I've got some questions. And she goes, oh, my God, you read it and you have questions? I'm like, well, yeah. So, yeah. like, that probably was, like, the best compliment she's ever received because, honestly, how yeah. many people are reading outside of, you know your small little group reads the, those master's theses. Well, I was like, I right. that even in grad school, like over the break, I read a book that one of the faculty members had just put out, like she was a, one of the lead editors on it. And we got back from the break. This is like New Year's or whatever. And I start down with her after class. I was like, hey, it's not really into the class. But I was just wondering, can we talk about your book? She's like, you read my book? I'm like, yeah, it just came out. I'm like, yeah, I read it last week. <laughs> well, so if you want to take it one step further, because I did that with some of the faculty members, I had them autograph the book. Oh, yeah, done that. I didn't do that because then they're like, "Oh my god!" I'm like, "I'm like, you know, uh, what is it, James Patterson?" Someone's asking me for an autograph, you know, right? <laughs> so I got an autographed copy of this book, which you know, it, but it did a lot to build up a rapport with that particular person. Yep. People love to be validated and ask questions about themselves. So if you don't know anything, just ask them questions about themselves. It's like, isn't it in like that? 10 things that like the most successful people do or whatever that book is. Friends and influence people, I think. You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, we talked about but, informational interview before and how beneficial that really is. Like that mindset of doing an informational interview in just about any setting can be helpful. Like we talked yeah. about taking it, applying it to grad school. So when I was applying to graduate school, I actually did school visits like people do for undergrad. And everyone was like, there were a couple of schools that had something planned, but most schools were like, you want to do what? I was like, I want to visit. I want to meet people. I want to like do whatever. Um, and at Penn State, they actually put, because it was a small program, they actually put a whole little agenda together. And I was able to sit in on a class and I talked to the professor all of like a couple minutes. So I really didn't know this person. This professor then actually got a job at the University of Mississippi right after I finished my program. So like we had had some conversations and we had had some debates because he does some of the politics and higher ed and higher ed law. Um, and when I was laid off, this was a faculty member that I didn't even realize I had built enough of a connection with. But we sat down and he was like, along with a couple other faculty members that I was, you know, it was really a group. I had a group of cheerleaders that I didn't even realize I had a group of cheerleaders for. Like, but they sat down and were like, let's help you. Let's figure this out. Well, and it's, that's what's nice is that you never know who's going to come back and help you. It could be somebody as simple as like you, you meet somebody in the airport and you're talking to them and then all of a sudden they come work at your university or they become the CEO of your corporation or whatever. You, you have no idea. And so as long as you're 
genuinely interested in other people, they're always going to feel positive towards you. And then you can utilize that maybe later. And so just building relationships in any manner could help. So like, I know I bring up Twitter all the time because it's where I do most of my networking, but like What's really cool to me is I, I follow all these people and then I'm reading their books. So like I pulled out a book yesterday. And my husband's like, what's this book? And I'm like, it's by this author that like I've talked to a few times on Twitter. And I'm like, I know I sound like super fangirly, but it's like, it's so cool that I can just interact with people like that book I mentioned earlier, Sustainable, Resilient, Free from John Warner. All I did was like, I was so fascinated by that book. I would like tweet quotes of it and he would reach out and be like, oh, cool. Like, I don't even remember exactly. I was just so excited that like the author of the book I was reading was like liking and commenting my tweets like about his book. And it can be such a smaller world if you're willing to just kind of organically go through and just be as fangirl, I guess, as you want. And like, as long as you're trying genuinely to understand or to figure somebody else out or to ask questions that you really want to know the answers to networking can be a lot easier than I ever, as my like anxiety kind of provoking thought it could be. Um, yeah. I know the introverts maybe cringe when I say this, but I love a good airport bar or any kind of bar. Like sometimes that's the best place if you just sort of go sit down at the end by yourself. And I'm not talking about like a flirting thing. I mean, like just sit down at like in a business area um, of town and just, just strike up a conversation with somebody. Like you never know who you're going to meet. I'm sorry. I have to interrupt. I have to go. My student just popped into a waiting room. Hi. I know. It's been like an hour. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Career Journey Podcast. Head over to our website at careerjourneypodcast.com for more information and the latest episodes. See you next time.